Welcome to Breast Cancer Update, an audio review journal for oncology nurses. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. While our series focuses on therapy of breast cancer, recently a fascinating study was published on a sharp decline in the incidence of breast cancer that not only has enormous clinical implications, but also biologic messages. The lead author on the study was Dr. Peter Rabden, who first presented these fascinating data at the December 2006 San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium and subsequently published the study in the New England Journal of Medicine. I chatted with Dr. Rabden, a medical oncologist, not only about this study, but also other issues in management of breast cancer. To begin, Dr. Ravden dissected out how he and his colleagues tried to figure out why suddenly, in 2002, a rapid 7% drop occurred in breast cancer incidence, representing about 16,000 fewer women diagnosed in the United States alone. What we did is we took a look at the characteristics of the women and their tumors to try to understand which women were not getting breast cancer. And what we found was that the decrease was really exclusively in women older than 50. So this actually points toward something that women older than 50 are doing or some change in their behavior. And the two obvious candidates would be a change in screening mammography because, of course, this is the population for which screening is widely done in the United States. And the other possibility is a change in hormone replacement therapy use. So that those were two possibilities. And what exactly did you find in terms of those two things, and what did you conclude? Well, what we looked at is then we looked at some of the characteristics of the tumors to see if that might give us a clue. And what we found was is that the major decrease in incidence, breast cancer incidence, was due to a decrease in estrogen receptor positive breast cancers. Now, of course, this is the form of breast cancer that's hormone-dependent. So that points more toward hormone replacement therapy than screening mammography. Screening mammography in a population will influence both the rates of estrogen receptor positive and estrogen receptor negative breast cancer fairly equally. So that we think looking at the characteristics of the cancers, that it's most consistent with the major role in this, you know, over one year change is something having to do with hormone replacement therapy, although we can't rule out contributions from other things. So can you track out a little bit about what we know about hormone replacement therapy and what happened around that same time in terms of the drop in women who stopped using it? Well, there was a very important trial that was started in the 1990s. It was actually one of several related trials as a part of what was called the Women's Health Initiative. Interestingly enough, hormone replacement therapy, many positive things were attributed to it, although it had never actually been formally tested in a randomized clinical trial. So two randomized clinical trials evaluating hormone replacement therapy were initiated in the 1990s. And one of these trials was a trial in which women were randomized between placebo 
and combined estrogen progestin preparation. And that's a typical type of hormone replacement that would be used with somebody who has a uterus. That's right. To protect uh, the uterus from getting uterine cancer. That's right. The progestin is added basically as a protective agent because when they started using pure estrogens, and that was actually started, that part of hormone replacement therapy now 30 years ago, there was a very rapid increase in the amount of endometrial cancer, cancer of the uterus. And it was recognized that that was caused by a, kind of a continuous pressure of the stimulatory effects of estrogen. The other part of the Women's Health Initiative trial looking at hormone replacement therapy was pure estrogen. But this, of course, would only be reasonable to give as hormone replacement therapy in women who had undergone a hysterectomy, who did not have a uterus. I guess we should say that when these trials were initiated, there was a very strong belief particularly in the OBGYN community, that it clearly, there was no doubt, going to show that it reduced heart disease and without a substantial you know, risk in terms of breast cancer. And that was really the basis of why it was being, I mean, there were tens of millions of women that were using it. Is that a fair statement that that's what they expected? Yes, that is a fair statement. You know, there was a book written early on about hormone replacement therapy called Forever Young. And there was a lot of positive effects attributed to the hormone replacement therapy. For instance, it was attributed women get less heart disease than men up until the age of about menopause. The idea that somehow estrogen was protective is the idea that estrogen might be protective for things like thinking. And actually, the results of the trial were really stunningly unanticipated. What the results of the trial were, and the first half of this trial, the part that was the combined estrogen plus progestin versus placebo, that trial's results were reported in mid-2002. In July of 2002, they were published. And what those results showed was a 26% increase in the risk of serious heart disease. With uh, taking the hormone replacement, with taking the, hormone the exact replacement opposite therapy. of what we thought was going to happen. Right. Many women had been taking hormone replacement therapy for a decade or longer with the idea that it was helping protect their hearts. Actually, it showed a 29% increase in breast cancer risk. It showed a 41% increase in the risk of having a stroke. And amazingly enough, in the older patients in this study, it actually showed an increased risk of developing dementia. So many of the positive attributes for hormone replacement therapy, at least for this form of hormone replacement therapy, were not supported by the data. In fact, were negative features of taking this form of hormone replacement therapy. I guess we should say, too, that, as you mentioned, there hadn't been any randomized studies, but there had been a lot of research looking at the issue. I think one of the things that really fooled people was there seemed to be a correlation between whether women took HRT and, again, lower heart disease, et cetera, But what they couldn't correct for was, would a woman who takes HRT be more likely to be doing other health things, you know, maybe exercising, better diet, et cetera? They might confound it and make those data not correct. Right. I think the idea that somehow you can correct for a number of imbalances, you know, just statistically, is really giving too much confidence in statisticians and statistical correction. Really, I think the result shows the power of randomized clinical trials, because in every study, they found positive effects, apparent positive effects, in women who were taking hormone replacement therapy. But then when you took a look at who these women were, 
These were women who were more likely to be non-smokers. They were more likely to be close to ideal body weight. They were more likely to have a number of you know, favorable health features. And even there was some attempt, therefore, to correct for that. But obviously, the correction was not well done. And it's never really possible outside of the context of a randomized trial, unless you're looking at a really huge effect, to be sure of it without a randomized trial. So this shocking report comes out. And then what happened to the use of hormone therapy in this country? What happened was it was really rapidly communicated to women and to their physicians. And within just four months, there was a 40% decrease in the use of hormone replacement therapy. And there was some decrease out into the next year as well. So at the end of a year and a half, there were only about one-third the hormone replacement therapy use that there had been previously. There were also major changes in the national guidelines about how to give hormone replacement therapy. Up until that time, they'd been generally positive for the use of hormone replacement therapy. After the results of the trial were published, most of the guidelines were then changed and said that hormone replacement therapy should be used at as low a dose as practical and for as short a period as practical. So basically ruling out the idea that hormone replacement therapy would be used for you know, 10 years or longer for things like prevention of heart disease. Almost 40% of women between 50 and 69 were taking hormone replacement therapy. So this represented, yes, millions of women who stopped taking hormone replacement therapy. So you tried to make the link then between this rapid drop that you had seen in breast cancer incidents with this acute publication of the study looking at HRT. And do you think that sort of explained it? I think that that largely does explain it. I think that the temporal link is very strong, that you see a very large change in health behavior. And at the same time, then you see, you know, a drop in the incidence of some health problems, specifically in this case, breast cancer, that would be linked to such a decrease in the use of hormone replacement therapy. Now, I have to say that there's going to be a continuing debate about this because it's possible that there are other contributing factors. And there was a slow decrease in the amount of screening mammography that was done in the country. You can raise the question that when a woman stops going to see her physician to get hormone replacement therapy, she stops getting perhaps mammograms as well. So all of these things would be worked out. But because of the size of the effect, and because it happened in a patient population you know, the tumors were estrogen receptor positive that seemed to be impacted by what was ever going on, that we think that it's most likely to be that the major contribution is a change in the pattern of use of hormone replacement therapy. And I guess the flip side of this is the recognition that for years, essentially, we were causing breast cancers. I mean, you know, 16,000 women would have gotten it, so it kind of implies that, you know, 16,000 cases would have been caused by it. It certainly raises the issue that some of the cases that were occurring in the United States were actually occurring because of the use of hormone replacement therapy. I should say that one study doesn't entirely prove the causality, and there is some information we're going to get that is going to bear on this observation. One of them is, is we're beginning to see national registries from other countries that had other patterns of changes in use of hormone replacement therapy, other patterns of changes in screening mammography, and actually in some cases we're using other forms of hormone replacement therapy. 
And in the end, I think that this will be very useful because I think it may give us an insight as to how to use hormone replacement therapy. There are going to be some strategies that, in my opinion, are going to be safer and some strategies which are less safe for the use of this agent. And I think our result doesn't really change the national guidelines. I think the national guidelines that hormone replacement therapy is a therapy that's acceptable over a short period of time, and by that I really mean, you know, potentially two to three years, is not an unreasonable thing. That women should be educated about the fact that they're accepting a little bit of risk. Although there are alternatives for managing the symptoms of menopause, estrogen really does do quite a good job. So you can do different things for hot flashes. You can take, for instance, antidepressants. But one could argue whether or not antidepressants are something that you would want to take. There are things you can do for you know, vaginal changes that occur when your hormone levels change. I think it's important to clarify, though, what you're saying, which is in contrast to before this trial came out, you would use it to treat symptoms, but not as a preventative, for example. Right. Actually, if you take a look at the package insert now, they're very specific on this point. And so they say that it's acceptable treatment for menopausal symptoms, for vaginitis, but it is not to be used for the prevention of heart disease. Now, one of the other things about this whole story that's so fascinating is what was seen in the women who got estrogen without progesterone, the women who had their uterus out. Right. I think that that actually really shows the complexity of this whole story because what they found in that study was, if anything, there was a trend to less breast cancer in the patients who were taking the pure estrogen preparation. Pretty counterintuitive. I think it shows what a complex disease and how incomplete our understanding of breast cancer really is. But clearly, you don't see that 26% bump that you see when you have progesterone on board. No. I think that there's actually growing epidemiologic evidence that progesterone is a particularly risky drug to take. For instance, there's a large study that was done in England called the Million Women Study, where they simply gave health questionnaires to women who came in for mammography and recorded what they were taking and then looked at what the incidence of breast cancer was. And what they found was in the long-term users of combined estrogen and progestin, that there was a doubling of risk for developing breast cancer. They actually found an increased risk for estrogen alone in the long-term users of about 1.3-fold. So it was a lesser effect. And that's not entirely consistent with the American result. But I think that there are a number of lines of evidence that suggest that progestins are particularly risky drugs to take. You know, the fact that this happened so quickly made people question if this change is related to sort of the development of breast cancer, or maybe that there's already a breast cancer that's been there for a while, it's just you can't see it. So by removing the estrogen or giving it, it's treating sort of a subclinical tumor or taking the stimulation to a subclinical tumor away. If that's the case, do you think that at some point now we might start to see an increase back up of breast cancer? Certainly, that's a possibility. I've talked largely about the results in 2003, but just before publication, we were able to get the data for 2004. Incidentally, the National Tumor Registries, it's a huge operation and undertaking, and of course, quality control of the data is very important. So there's always about a two to three year lag between getting the detailed data and the actual events so that we just this spring were able to get high-quality data for 2004. 
The data in 2004 is encouraging in that what it shows is that the decreased rates of breast cancer were sustained into 2004. And that's good news. It's not a one year and then the cancers adapt to this new environment and then start growing again. And I think that in the end, what we're going to see, I hope, is an effect where some cancers actually do adapt and start growing back. But that for some cancers, that really does make a profound difference. And that over the long term, they will not become clinically obvious. I want to shift to another topic. You know, you've developed the Adjuvant Online website, which is extremely commonly utilized by oncologists now to try to calculate the potential benefits of different interventions in the adjuvant setting, breast, colorectal, and lung cancer. And I actually want to focus a little bit on the issue of sort of the flip side of the efficacy part, which is the side effects and toxicity of adjuvant therapy, and chat a little bit about what you think some of the critical pieces of information are that should go out to a patient who's considering or about to start adjuvant therapy of different types in terms of potential risks and side effects, and maybe what the implications might be for a nurse who might be seeing these patients in terms of the kinds of things they might want to be on the lookout for. And I'd like to start by talking a little bit about adjuvant chemotherapy from that perspective. And, you know, maybe we can kind of go through some of the common regimens that are being utilized right now in terms of the treatment of adjuvant chemotherapy. And what are some of the issues that you think should be brought up to patients in terms of potential risks and side effects of those therapies? Maybe we can just start out simply with, you know, with the most common form of adjuvant chemotherapy utilized right now in the United States currently, which is AC or adriamycin and cyclophosphamide. There's been a lot of discussion recently about this issue, how much of a cardiac risk there might be in this situation. What are some of the key points of things that you think should be brought up to women who's considering AC? Okay. I think that there are several points that I try to make with women who are about to get adjuvant chemotherapy, particularly adjuvant chemotherapy of an AC type of mode. I think that it's important to say some things that are somewhat reassuring, but also to give them a realistic picture, you know, of the rigors of parts of the therapy. The thing that I tell patients that I'm careful to tell them that's reassuring is that most of my patients actually are able to work during their adjuvant chemotherapy. So what I tell them is I wouldn't plan anything during the first cycle, which it would be catastrophe if you had to miss a few days. But I think you should hope and expect that in the usual course of events, you will actually be able to work during most of that time. Incidentally, I try to give a lot of the adjuvant chemotherapy to women on Fridays, particularly if they're working, because that gives them a couple days to get through the acute toxicities of the therapy. Then I actually break it out into several issues. And the issues are acute toxicity, what you can expect on the day you get chemotherapy and the day afterwards, kind of subacute toxicity, and that's toxicities that will go on during a period where you're getting the therapy, and then toxicities that may take a while to resolve. And then finally, I talk about some rare but really dangerous late toxicities or really unfortunate late toxicities. So usually the patient wants to know about issues that have been well publicized about adjuvant chemotherapy. Am I going to lose my hair? The answer, of course, if you're giving anthracycline, as we all know, is yes. Am I going to have nausea and vomiting? And a lot of people fear that, that they're going to have debilitating nausea and vomiting. 
Today's anti-emetic regimens should be able to prevent almost all of that. And so I think that particularly from the nursing point of view, that should be the expectation that we can prevent that. And we can't prevent that in everybody. There's an occasional person who just doesn't seem to respond. But for most patients, the expectation should be that we'll be able to control that. The other thing reassuring to tell patients is that if they do have a problem with that, that's something that bothers them within the first two to three days and is rarely protracted throughout the cycle. In terms of issues that are, say, more delayed and are going to be issues on and off during the treatment The toxicities that I bring up are, in particular, neutropenia and fever. I think that all of us, as clinical people, are careful to coach patients on the correct response should they develop a fever. And so I think those algorithms are well worked out in most clinics, and it's just important to make sure the patient's aware of those algorithms, really, or at least the fact that they need to contact the clinic about them. There are other issues, fatigue. I think that most patients need to be told that fatigue will occur, that in general, I think most patients feel more fatigue during the course of therapy so that the last cycles are harder to get through from that point of view than the first cycles. Do we know how much of that fatigue is sort of pharmacologic in terms of direct effect of the drugs as opposed to, for example, stress? I mean, this is a major problem, lack of sleep, et cetera, staying up because of the decadron, et cetera. You know, I haven't seen any really good studies that I could quote about that. Do you have any sense about it clinically? I think it's probably a combination of both. I think that, you know, you can tell things, for instance, like the last cycles of therapy are harder in terms of bone marrow and those kinds of issues. So that I think that in general, the adjuvant therapies affect a lot of different systems in the body, and that's perceived as fatigue. Is there anything that can be done to combat that? I actually have not found a perfect solution. I think that sometimes it can be associated with anemia and you can correct the anemia. I actually haven't used stimulants. And certainly I've heard of people that have tried stimulants, but it's a problem and one that I don't have a good solution for. What about the long-term complications of anthracyclines? Those are something that I'm very careful to mention to patients. And I think that it's important, actually, amongst other things from a medical legal point of view, to make sure that people are aware of some of the really terrible downsides of adjuvant chemotherapy. Now, they're rare. They're somewhere in the range of, for something like AC times 4, is somewhere in the range about half a percent risk of developing leukemia or a pre-leukemic-like state. And those forms of leukemia will eventually cause your death. Those are chemotherapy-associated leukemia or myelodysplastic syndrome, and they're not very treatable. So that is something that patients should be aware of. And, of course, the other issue is the issue of cardiac toxicity from anthracyclines. And that's something that everyone should be aware of because somewhere in the range, a similar range of one-half to one percent of people will develop significant falls in the left ventricular ejection fraction. Now, I don't routinely take every patient and have them get a MUGA study before their adjuvant chemotherapy. Most of the adjuvant chemotherapy regimens stay well away from the total dose that would be associated with higher risks of congestive failure. Nonetheless, if a patient is in the older part of the distribution or has any really serious cardiac risk factors, long-standing history of hypertension, any real documented cardiovascular disease, 
Those patients I do get a mug on, at least so that I can tell if the question gets raised later that I can repeat the mug. But the total dose of anthracyclines is generally low enough that only a few patients develop congestive failure. I think, however, that it's very important in patients who are at risk for that, the older part, the patients who have cardiac histories, to do some kind of documentation about their cardiac status and also to communicate with a patient that there is that risk despite screening so that no one comes back later and says that they weren't informed of such a risk. Incidentally, one of the things that is underutilized in adjuvant online program is that there are toxicity sheets for patients. And those toxicity sheets, I think, are very important because if you look at a program like adjuvant, it seems to talk mostly in terms of the graphics about what benefits you might get from adjuvant therapy. But of course, any balanced discussion includes uh, discussion of the toxicities as well. So if you want to look up the percentage of risk of developing congestive failure with that regimen, and it actually takes, extracts data from the clinical studies of the regimen. So if you want to know what the reported risks of anemia are in the dose-dense study, the numbers are there. Now, having said that, I think that, in general, we're very poor in documenting toxicity. So I don't know how reliable those numbers are from the trials, but at least in terms of the evidence that we have at hand, it's available there. The other thing that we don't do with toxicity is we generally actually underplay them in publications, so there'll be just a simple table. And we don't actually analyze very well who the people are who get those toxicities. So whether or not, for instance, age affects the risk. So there isn't the individualization that goes on for estimates of benefit that goes on for estimates of toxicity. So we talked about AC. The other regimen we know from our patterns of care studies right now that people are using in terms of the lower risk patient, no negative, is the so-called TC combination, where instead of having adriamycin cyclophosphamide, you have docetaxel and cyclophosphamide. And it looks like maybe there are going to be fewer relapses, maybe better survival with the TC. Maybe you can talk about that. But also, can you discuss sort of what you might say to a patient starting TC as opposed to AC, what the difference would be? Okay. There are some advantages to the TC regimen over an AC regimen. And these advantages are not only advantages in terms of the advantages for efficacy, but there are also toxicity differences. By leaving out an anthracycline, of course, you leave out much of the additional risk of therapy-related leukemia, and you also don't have the cardiac issues. For the TC regimen, there is a modestly increased risk of developing neutropenia and fever, although that's very modest. It's 6% on AC, and it was 12% on TC, so that's just a very small difference. And I guess growth factors preventively were not used. Right, that's right. Well, I should emphasize that one of the disclaimers, by the way, in the toxicity sheets in adjuvant is that it says these risks of toxicity may vary with some of your health characteristics, and also the chances of getting them depend on 
the various kinds of therapy to prevent them that you might get. So that I think certainly there's the possibility of decreasing the toxicity in TC. In general, I don't think people are giving TC with supportive growth factors just because the risk is modest of developing neutropenia and fever. Although somebody did develop it, I think then at that point they'd be getting growth factors to prevent from happening again. Absolutely. And with the weight of the evidence pointing toward the idea that we'd like to maintain you know, good dose intensity, yes, that anyone who would run into difficulty would get it. There are other issues with a drug like Taxotere. You know, there's the possibility of neuropathy. There's the possibility of hand-foot type of syndromes. So I think that patients need to be informed about those. But in general, I think that the regimen was reasonably well tolerated. And I think that, you know, it's a simple 12-week regimen, and it doesn't surprise me that it's become a lot more popular over the last year. Can you talk a little bit more about the kinds of problems you can see with docetaxel and maybe some of the things that a nurse might want to look out for? Well, docetaxel is a drug that is, in general, a little bit more toxic than paclitaxel. Particularly, the docetaxel every three-week type regimens have more toxicity than the paclitaxel weekly regimens. Now, the every three-week regimen with docetaxel can be very valuable in that it has good efficacy But it needs to be recognized that it will demand more from the patient in terms of toxicity. And some of the specific things that occur that we see, you know, those of us have given a lot of docetaxel over time, we see fairly commonly nail changes. And these can be really disturbing to the patient. And certainly patients should be warned about the possibility they may occur. Of course, they resolve after finishing the docetaxel, but they can be frightening during the time it is given. In general, also, docetaxel is associated with asthenia, which is a fancy word which means basically cumulative fatigue. And so that patients, after a number of cycles of docetaxel, quite often express the fact that they're feeling tired. So this is a drug that actually is, a, in a way, a good drug for adjuvant therapy because it's possible to put up with those kind of effects for 12 weeks where in some of these short regimens, like the TC regimen. Whereas if you try to take docetaxel over the course of a year, it's much more problematic. Now, one of the things we saw in the metastatic disease trials where we're giving docetaxel for a long period of time was fluid retention. And that fluid retention responded to diuretics, and it's a reversible type of fluid retention. But there is always a concern that that could happen. Having said that, I have to say that in general, in the adjuvant setting where docetaxel is given for only a few cycles, I haven't seen patients develop severe fluid retention the way we did in the trials in metastatic disease. What about tearing lacrimal changes? There certainly is the possibility of having tear duct problems or tear duct sclerosis These have been a real limitation for the idea of giving docetaxel on a weekly basis, where they really were a severe problem. Interestingly enough, they don't tend to be a major issue with the every three-week regimens, at least in my experience. So I think that one of the things that's led us away from the weekly regimens, which paclitaxel has adopted, led us away from the use of weekly docetaxel is that it is associated with tear duct changes, and this can really inconvenience people. What's going on there? Is it a direct toxic effect on the tear duct? You know, I'm not 100% sure on this point, but I do think it is a direct toxic effect. 
and then it sort of closes down and the tears right. can't get out right. more or less. And you can send a person to an ophthalmologist. In some cases, they can do something to try to open the tear duct. But it can be a real nuisance to patients. But the patient complains of excess of tears, correct? Well, what they compare of, yes, watery eyes. I don't think it's actually extra tears being produced so much as it is that the normal flow of the moisture from the eye is blocked. Let's flip over a little bit to the issue of the therapy of the patient who has a HER2-positive tumor. Mm -hmm. And, of course, now, in the last two years, we have the option on the table of using trastuzumab or Herceptin in the adjuvant therapy of those patients, usually with chemotherapy. Again, what would you say to a patient who's about to begin a chemotherapy regimen that will include trastuzumab? And I guess... The two major options right now that have been studied in the trials are using, again, an anthracycline and a taxane, either docetaxel or paclitaxel, or using just a taxane, specifically the TCH regimen, docetaxel, carboplatinum, trastuzumab, without having an anthracycline as part of that. Can you talk again about what you might say to a patient who's starting on one of the anthracycline, taxane, trastuzumab combinations, as opposed to TCH? Okay. I think that if I was comparing the two, what I would do is be telling the patient that we have really one trial that compares them in terms of efficacy and that there was no statistically significant difference in outcome of people that took one regimen versus the other. So that in that case, they really, their efficacies were approximately equal. That there were differences in toxicity. That the thing that we've worried about the most in terms of the problems that might arise from taking trastuzumab or cardiac issues. And the thing that's quite striking in the trial was that the excess cardiac issues that occurred in the patients who had gotten anthracyclines in the past and were now taking trastuzumab, that those patients actually had a several-fold higher risk of developing cardiac issues, but that the patients who had received the non-anthracycline-related therapy, that there was essentially no evidence of excess cardiac issues. So that's really, you know, those two results are really very helpful. And what they say is that we've probably got a good way of giving adjuvant chemotherapy in a way that we can not use, including the regimen in anthracycline. And then when we do that, what we do is we find ourselves in a situation where we don't get additional cardiac toxicity, which has been seen. Now, there are still some issues there, and that is we have this information from just one trial, and I'm not sure what the actual national recommendations will be about doing MUGA exams, But right now, of course, the MUGA exam recommendations for an anthracycline regimen followed by a taxine Herceptin regimen followed by just Herceptin alone or trastuzumab alone, that the issues there are that you should get a baseline MUGA exam and then get a MUGA every three months during the course of therapy. It's clear that we probably don't need to do that with the taxotere carbo, but there still is some cardiac toxicity. So I think that some pattern of follow-up MUGA exams is going to be what eventually is recommended for that regimen. Now, for those few unfortunate patients who actually do develop congestive heart failure while they're receiving chemotherapy and trastuzumab, usually I guess it's going to be including an anthracycline. What's the natural history in those women? What happens to those patients? Well, the good news is that it doesn't appear to be quite the devastating cardiac toxicity that can be seen with the cumulative effects of an anthracycline. 
in that cumulative effects of anthracyclines have been in general associated with really long-term deficits in left ventricular ejection fraction. In the patients in the trastuzumab trials, what was seen was a fairly rapid recovery of the left ventricular ejection fraction. And in most patients, a resolution of any signs or symptoms of congestive heart failure. Now, the problem there is that a number of the patients who had those signs and symptoms resolved were actually taking cardiac meds. And we're still taking cardiac meds six months later. Now, whether or not that was strictly due to the fact they really needed to or there was just conservatism on the part of the physicians, it's not really completely clear to me. But I think one of the things that we can't reassure patients about yet is about what the long-term effects of trastuzumab are, because we simply don't have enough patients in the adjuvant arena that have been followed for a long time. All of these trials have less than five years of follow-up as reported at least as of early May in 2007. So I don't think you can absolutely reassure patients. And I think one of the things that is a thing that actually haunts us a little bit is the possibility that, you know, there might be some injury that would show up years later. I have to say that one of the more interesting pieces of work was done by Dr. Sharon Giano. And although it doesn't actually relate directly to trastuzumab, it does relate to anthracyclines. And what she did is she did in the Medicare population, took that database of reports of illness and expenses from illness, and united it with the SEER registry so that they could track who had had breast cancer and what kind of therapies they'd gotten. Now, this is in the older part of the population, 65 years and older. But what she found was much higher rates of congestive heart failure than have been reported in the clinical trials. And it's not absolutely clear why that's happening, but, you know, the idea that it's a half a percent to one percent, I mean, she was seeing rates of five to ten percent in some of the older patient groups. And that's really very troubling to us. And a lot of this was delayed. It wasn't actually acute therapy. And I think this points out that for many of the new therapies, we don't really have long-term follow-up. And there's the potential for some nasty surprises down the road. And one hopes that that's not the case with trastuzumab, but you can't tell a patient in an absolute reassuring way that we know what the 10-year imports are. But then again, if I have a patient that does develop some evidence of left ventricular ejection fraction, I reassure them that almost no one dies of this and that most people actually have any signs or symptoms resolved within six months and that as far as we know right now, there are not long-term consequences. But in fact, we don't really have data one way or another about the long-term consequences. It's interesting, you know, this report that you mentioned that seemed to show that the TCH without the anthracycline was as effective with the anthracycline interest, and it just came out in December 2006. Mm -hmm. And we know from our patterns of care studies that it's starting to have an impact on practice, but still most of the docs out there are staying with the regimens that were originally reported in terms of the anthracyclines. One of the things that I've heard people talk about is the advantage of the TCH in terms of you get the Herceptin started sooner. With the other one, you have to wait till the anthracyclines are done before you start the trastuzumab. Where do you think things are heading? What do you think people are going to be doing over the next year or two as they sort of process this information? Well, I think that there's a possibility of really some very interesting things occurring. And in particular, I think that what we're seeing is, well, non-anthracycline-based regimens 
you know, doing quite well against anthracycline-based regimens. And I think the great teaching of the last 20 years is that really the best class of drugs was anthracyclines, perhaps rivaled by taxanes, but that the backbone of therapy would be anthracycline-taxane regimens. And that certainly has been the backbone of most American clinical trials. It's interesting to me that the two trials, the TC trial done by U.S. Oncology and the trial of Taxotere, Carboplatin, and Trastuzumab, that both of those trials are not really U.S. cooperative group trials. And I actually salute the BCRG for doing a trial that we would have had a lot of difficulty doing in the U.S., you know, the natural conservatism would have been to keep an anthracycline in the regimen. How could you leave it out? And what they did is actually they left it out. I would point out, though, that it is interesting to me how one clinical trial these days with rather limited follow-up can change the patterns of care. And even that trial, the BCRG trial of taxotere Carbo and Trastuzumab, you know, that trial actually was reported approximately a year earlier. And at that time, actually, it looked like the non-anthracycline arm plus trastuzumab was inferior. So I think we haven't actually gotten mature results from any trial addressing this. And I think although it has attractive features, I think it's perfectly reasonable to keep using an anthracycline-based regimen because the data is really incomplete. On the other hand, I think that, you know, I can understand the people that would want to change as well in that all the results from the trial seem to be consistent with the idea of elimination of the anthracycline substitution with other active agents results in a good outcome for patients. Both of those trials incorporated thinking that really was not widely accepted in the United States, and that is the idea that a non-anthracycline-based regimen would be a good form of adjuvant therapy. And I actually think that both of these trials really are very important trials, and that they had the courage to do them, I think, speaks well of kind of innovation. You mentioned the concerning issue of the possibility of developing heart failure. What are some of the signs, earlier signs of heart failure that a nurse in the infusion room might want to keep her eye out for? Well, I think that the early signs are signs of fluid retention. And then what you see is you see puffiness of the ankles. People complain that they have more trouble taking off a ring on their finger or that kind of thing. A general evidence of fluid retention. Occasionally people will complain of dyspnea. You know, when it's really, I mean, it's rare to see those complaints without some prior fluid retention signs or symptoms. But certainly that is a complaint that should lead to the consideration of whether or not the patient's in congestive failure. Finally, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you say to patients about to begin adjuvant hormonal therapy, and let's focus on the postmenopausal situation. And I'd like you to contrast, we've seen clearly in our patterns of care studies, a major shift towards the use of aromatase inhibitors, whereas in the past it was tamoxifen, although mm-hmm. there's a question of maybe tamoxifen will have some kind of role in the long run in terms of the treatment there. What would you say to a patient is about to begin on an AI as opposed to a patient about to be in on tamoxifen in terms, again, side effects, toxicity, and complications. Okay, let's put this in the context of a postmenopausal woman. Of course, AIs wouldn't be appropriate for premenopausal women, but a patient who is purely postmenopausal. What I would tell her is that the national recommendations right now suggest, and these are the ASCO guidelines, that adjuvant hormonal therapy should include an aromatase inhibitor. 
However, they are careful. They don't specify which aromatase inhibitor, and they don't specify exactly how to use the aromatase inhibitor. Now, the basis of this recommendation is several clinical trials in which pure tamoxifen-related strategies were compared with strategies that included an aromatase inhibitor. What I would say is that there really are several different ways that aromatase inhibitors have been used in adjuvant therapy. One of them is they've been used from the very beginning, so completely substitute for tamoxifen, and no tamoxifen is ever given. If you look into the literature, you'll see that the other major way that aromatase inhibitors have been given is after two to three years of tamoxifen. So you start on tamoxifen, and then you switch over to complete five years of therapy with an aromatase inhibitor. Both of these strategies have beaten a pure tamoxifen strategy. Neither of these strategies have been actually compared to each other in a randomized clinical trial. So that we don't know which is best at the moment. So both are acceptable strategies. Now, the aromatase inhibitors have a special interest because they have a different toxicity profile, side effect profile, from tamoxifen. And in a number of ways, they're actually safer. They're less likely to be associated with thrombotic events. They're less likely to be associated with endometrial cancer. And And would you say that there is an increased risk of thrombosis or endometrial cancer with the AIs at all? I think there's no evidence. I think that it's basically the outcome of patients getting AIs would be the same as patients who are getting placebo. Now, sometimes the comparator is tamoxifen. But AIs are not associated with those kind of issues. Incidentally, the older a patient gets, the more that these are issues. Now, AIs have one major disadvantage. And the major disadvantage is that AIs, unlike tamoxifen, actually does not protect bone mass. And so as part of your treatment planning, what we're going to do is measure your bone mass. And it's a simple test that all women, it's recommended that all women get in the United States periodically. So it's not a big deal. It's simply a way of looking at the density of the kind of bone structure in your spine and hip. If you are found to have low bone mineral density, what we're going to be doing is there's a medicine that can help protect your bone mineral density, and we can give you one of those medicines. And so... The other thing is you'll be taking the aromatase inhibitor for five years, and during that time, you will get a yearly bone mineral density test. So we can keep track of whether or not things are within acceptable ranges and whether or not they're changing. How would you compare sort of the more acute side effects of aromatase inhibitors versus tamoxifen? Well, in terms of you know, hot flashes and those kind of things, their frequencies increased with both agents. The thing that was interesting about aromatase inhibitors and is different than tamoxifen is that there's arthralgias associated with it. And the arthralgias can be really a nuisance and frightening in patients who start aromatase inhibitors. So I'm very careful to coach patients about arthralgias. And I tell them that there's a chance that they'll occur, but that if they do occur, we can treat them with kind of an arthritis medicine. As far as we know, this really isn't a severe form of arthritis. But while they're taking the aromatase inhibitor, you know, they may experience it. The other thing I tell them is that if they are experiencing it, and if we give them therapy for the problems that they're having, 
and they don't respond to that therapy or they're intolerant of aromatase inhibitors. The tamoxifen really, in terms of efficacy, isn't a bad drug, and we can always basically treat them with tamoxifen. What are some of the things that can be done to try to manage the arthralgias that you see with the AIs? Basically, there's not a consensus of exactly how to treat that arthralgia. And I don't think it's been totally physiologically explained, except you know something of a very, very low estrogen state type rationale. The only thing I've really heard people talk on that have really worked for these arthralgias is just an aggressive program of nonsteroidal anti-inflammatants. A lot of us have had uh, mixed success with those kind of strategies and have tried a lot of other things, but you don't really see any given ideas just you know, totally uniquely wonderful in this circumstance. And I think that that in part reflects the fact that we don't really understand the physiologic mechanism that's going on.